Welcome back to Chaos. It occurs to me only now for some reason that there's been a certain arc to this course that we haven't talked about yet. Remember we began with the creation of the universe itself out of chaos in the creation myths of ancient peoples around the world? And then before long we were talking about the solar system and the orbits of the planets, Poincaré's work and so on. So from the universe to the solar system, then we spent most of our time in the course at the everyday scale of the world around us. And so there's one place left to go. It's natural for us now to think about what happens in the microscopic realm of, of atoms where quantum mechanics reigns supreme. I hope you'll find this lecture on quantum chaos to be really thought-provoking and maybe even delicious. Um, why delicious? Because it's about a stew. It's the story of an amazing scientific stew in which we blend two of the greatest theories in all of science, chaos and quantum mechanics. What happens when we try to blend them? We'll see that they don't mix as easily as you might imagine, but once we find the right recipe, they're terrific together. Quantum chaos opens up all sorts of possibilities for future electronic devices, for making beautiful abstract art, and maybe even for solving the greatest mystery in mathematics. So let me begin by telling you why is it that chaos and quantum theory aren't kindred spirits? You might have thought that they were. I mean, you would think that they have a lot in common, really, because they both highlight the unpredictability of nature and the limits of human knowledge. So in that way, they seem like bedfellows. And certainly the frenzied motion of atoms and subatomic particles, that sounds like chaos. But at a deeper level, there are profound conflicts between the two theories. Let me focus on three of them in ascending order of seriousness. The first one has to do with their worldview. They have divergent worldviews. Chaos is founded on a deterministic worldview in which the future is determined by the present. Only one thing can happen. Given current conditions of the universe, there's one unique future. But quantum theory, on the other hand, doesn't see the world like that at all. Quantum theory sees the world in terms of probability. That is the only meaningful thing. There is no certainty. There is only probability. Nothing is certain to happen. You can only talk about the probability or likelihood of something, say, finding an electron at a certain place at a certain time. The second conflict is more severe. Strictly speaking, Chaos is forbidden in quantum mechanics. It's just outlawed. There is no quantum chaos. So we could stop this lecture right now, you might think. But we're not going to. Let me try to explain, though, why chaos is outlawed. What is, what is so impermissible about it? And to make sense of this, we have to know a little more about the math behind quantum theory. Specifically, we need to know about the differential equation at the heart of the theory. Well, quantum theory, as you've probably heard somewhere describes everything as a blur of probability waves. As I say, you can only describe the probability of something being somewhere or moving at a certain speed or whatever. So there are these waves that control those probabilities, and the waves themselves, they're not fixed. They change over time. They evolve. Deterministically, it turns out. An interesting paradox there. Although they have an interpretation in terms of probability, their own evolution, the waves evolve deterministically. They change from moment to moment according to a certain differential equation, a certain law of motion. And actually, that's what we've come to expect in this course. Ever since lecture two, 
where we first encountered Newton's great secret. It's useful to solve differential equations. Remember that point? The laws of nature are written in the language of differential equations, and that is still true even in quantum theory. But here's the rub. The differential equation that happens to govern the evolution of quantum waves, called the Schrodinger equation, turns out to be linear. Linear, the key idea that we've talked about so many times now, linear versus nonlinear. Linear equations cannot support chaos. They have no chaos. It can be proven mathematically. There is no chaos in linear systems. You need nonlinear equations to see chaos. Well, that means there can be no chaos in any system governed by the Schrodinger equation. There is no chaos in quantum theory, period. As if that weren't bad enough, there is a third conflict that I would say is the worst of all. And it has to do with the famous uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Let's remember what that says. It has to do with making simultaneous measurements of a particular type. Suppose I were trying to measure some particle moving, like a ball moving through the air or an electron moving through a microscopic device. I might want to know its position right now and its velocity, how fast it's moving and in what direction. But Heisenberg tells us we can't do that. We can't measure both position and velocity simultaneously. You could say, why not? What happens if I try? Well, you can try, and you can measure one of them as well as you like. You can pin the position down with the best instruments. You can make it as precise as you wish. But if you do that, by narrowing the uncertainty in position, you automatically raise the uncertainty in velocity. It's like a seesaw. You can push one uncertainty down, but then the other one goes up. And if you push that one down, then the other one goes up. There's no way around it. It's built into the structure of the universe. There is no way to measure position and velocity simultaneously with unlimited precision. Now, why is that so terrible for chaos? Because it destroys our whole concept of state space. From the beginning of this course, we've been talking about state space. State, what is a state? A state is the amount of information you need to predict the future of a deterministic system. For example, we talked about a simple pendulum swinging back and forth. And early on, I pointed out that the state of that pendulum is determined by two numbers, its initial angle and its initial velocity. That is, it's not enough just to know how far I deflect the pendulum. I might also give it a push or I might release it at rest. I need to know initial position and initial velocity to determine the future of its swing. But that's what Heisenberg will not permit. You cannot measure or know position and velocity simultaneously. And that's exactly what we need to describe the state of a pendulum. And it's not just a problem with a pendulum. It's true in all of classical mechanics that we need the two things that we're not allowed to have by quantum theory. So the upshot is that states and trajectories become blurry and ill-defined once we get to the atomic scale where quantum mechanics takes over. The fine structure required for chaos to persist gets smoothed out and washed away by quantum effects. So for all these reasons, quantum chaos is a very problematic subject. You might even say it doesn't exist, but it does. And here's what people mean when they speak of quantum chaos. It's sort of imprecise language. This is the better way to say it. What we really mean are quantum signatures of deterministic chaos. In other words, what we're saying is, suppose we have some 
classical system out here in the macroscopic world that we live in that's chaotic. That can happen. We have such things. We've seen them throughout the course. So we have a chaotic system, and now we imagine shrinking it down to microscopic size, to atomic size. Is there any vestige, any remnant of its chaos when we look at the system at that small scale? That's the question. What are the vestiges or the signatures of classical chaos in the quantum realm? That's our subject for today. Well, this question was first examined theoretically in, with math and in computer simulations. And one model system that I want to discuss now for a few minutes is uh, something you'd encounter if you just go to a, a pool hall, billiards, just a, a ball bouncing around on a pool table. Might seem like a strange thing for lofty academic scientists to be studying, but it's not. It's a beautiful mechanical system, and it's taught us a lot about quantum theory as well as classical mechanics. So here's the setup. Imagine a particle, which if you like, think of as a billiard ball, and it's moving in straight lines on a frictionless pool table. Not so realistic, but it makes life simpler to imagine no friction. So this particle is moving on the frictionless pool table, and then it bounces off the cushions whenever it hits one of the walls. Now this just goes on forever. We're assuming no loss of energy. There's no friction. So And also the collisions at the walls are perfectly elastic. So this particle is just going to bounce around in the pool table, bouncing off the cushions forever. And the question is, what are the trajectories like in the long run? Will they be regular or will they be chaotic? The character of the motion turns out to depend on the shape of the table. If the table has a simple shape like a rectangle at the usual pool table or, say, a circular pool table, It turns out the motion is regular. I'll show you that in a computer simulation in a minute. Regular, in this case, means two balls that start close together. Imagine two shots that were started very close together and moving in practically the same direction at the same speed. They will stay together for a long time after subsequent bounces, diverging but only very slowly, not exponentially fast. So there's no chaos in a circular pool table. But the motion does become chaotic if the table has a shape like a stadium. Think of a football stadium with sort of two straight lines capped off by two semicircles. If you watch the motion of a ball bouncing around in such a stadium, it turns out that the trajectories of a pair of such balls will rapidly exponentially diverge after just a few caroms. That's the billiard version of the butterfly effect, sensitive dependence on initial conditions, the the exponential amplification of small uncertainties or differences. the the trademark of a chaotic system. So to give you a feel for what this looks like, let me show you these simulations of billiards. First, the regular case of the circle, and then the stadium case where we have chaos. All right, let's see if I can get this simulation to work. All right, here you see the initial setting is that we've got the, uh, we're using a circular pool table. And what I can do is choose the number of bounces that I want to watch. So just to keep it really simple, let's suppose I just do one bounce. There, I've hit the wall. That's not too interesting. Let's watch, say, three bounces. Ooh, that is also not terribly interesting. Uh, That's going to just bounce back and forth. So let's try starting somewhere else with three bounces. That looks better. And you see that, as you'd expect with any bouncing off of a wall, as they say, the angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection. And that just keeps happening as we bounce. So you get the idea what's going to happen, but let's watch it a little bit longer. Go for 10 bounces. 
start to see a little pattern emerging, and probably it's obvious to you what's going to happen now. In the long run, if we do something like 100 bounces, it fills out a very nice pattern. So that is regular motion, as expected for the circular pool table. Let's change now to a stadium. To do that, uh, I need to change what's called the ratio here. So I'm going to make this number 2, and I will say, well, I don't know, let's say start. There's a stadium, and I now pick a point somewhere in the stadium. Let me only make, say, two or three bounces initially to get the hang of things. So I've chosen my initial point. I say start, and... So far, it doesn't look like anything very dramatic. Let's try 10 iterations. Now, you might see that motion is looking a little more complicated, but to really appreciate the, the full magnitude of the unpredictability of this motion, watch the long-term pattern after, say, 100 shots, 100, not 100 shots, 100 bounces, and compare it to what you just saw in the case of the circle. So I'll up this number to 100 and say start and watch. That's what chaos looks like, a very irregular trajectory in the case of the stadium pool table. Well, so far we've been focusing on billiards in just an ordinary classical sense. Deterministic motion of a particle moving in a pool table. That's the classical world. We haven't done anything quantum yet. Now we're going to go to the quantum counterpart of this classical chaotic system. How will things be different? Well, we can't really talk about trajectories anymore. In fact, I can't even talk about a state. I don't remember. I can't say what the initial position and velocity are. So the best I can do is think of a trajectory as a kind of smeared out, blurry probability wave, whatever that means. There's a kind of wave, a fuzz going around what used to be the classical trajectory. And a picture of these waves, if we can make one, will show where the ball is most likely to be found. That is where the wave is highest, that means high probability of finding the particle there. But you can find it anywhere, just with lower probability at the places where the wave is low. Now, I really do mean to speak about waves because you can think about these in a classical way. If the, the classical motion were regular, like in the case of the circular stadium, the waves turn out to look like the vibration patterns of a drum. You may have seen vibration patterns of a drum head. At, it's a standard little exhibit that they do at science museums. You take a plate, it could be a circle, it could be a square or something, and then you sprinkle a little bit of sand on it. Have you ever done this? You have the sand on the metal plate, and then they give you a violin bow, and you start bowing on the edge of the plate to cause it to vibrate at different frequencies, and the sand gets shaken, and then in places where the plate is not vibrating at all, the no, the ant, those would be the nodes of the vibration, then the sand collects, and you get this nice pattern of sand which shows you the vibration pattern of the plate. Well, you, you may be able to visualize those. They're, they're not very complicated patterns. They're quite regular looking, as you'd expect for regular motion. But the surprise comes if we do the same experiment with a chaotic plate, so to speak. If the classical motion were chaotic, like it is in the stadium, what would the wave pattern be? That's the question. Well, people thought about this question, and, and before computer simulations were done, there was intuition about what would happen. The intuition was, look, chaos is basically the same thing as randomness. 
And so what we'll expect is we'll see a random collision of waves. It'll look like whatever a random wave pattern will look like. And we know that from other branches of physics, that random wave patterns with waves colliding from all different directions, they look speckled. You would expect a speckled pattern, people thought. But you've probably noticed that I said something pretty specious a minute ago, that chaos is basically randomness. I hope by now, here in Lecture 22, you know that is dead wrong. Chaos is not the same as randomness. Chaos has lots of latent order, hidden order in it. It's quite different from randomness. It's poised between randomness and regularity. So, in fact, when the first simulations were done by Eric Heller, a physicist, he found something that didn't look random at all. It didn't look like speckles. The actual picture he found has prominent scars in it. The scars, I'll show you right now in a, an image that Heller has made. Here's Eric Heller's image that he calls scar. You see the stadium. And what he's showing is the picture of the quantum waves inside the stadium corresponding to the billiard problem that we were just talking about. And do you see, this doesn't look like a speckled pattern at all. There are very prominent tracks through here. Look at this one that I'm tracing with my cursor. It looks like there's a kind of X-shaped region capped off by two lines on the top and bottom. Now, what is this thing? You can sort of see the way I'm moving my, my mouse here that this is a possible trajectory for a ball. I could bounce happily in around and around in a periodic orbit. Bounce over to here, bounce down to here, over to there, and back to where I started. That is, there's a periodic orbit that repeats perfectly a trajectory that is conceivable in this chaotic stadium. Now, such perfectly repeating trajectories are very rare. I happen to pick one, and actually the scar is, is highlighting that one. They're rare and unstable. Remember, this system is chaotic, so if I just move a little bit off that trajectory, I won't repeat it. I'm going to go diverging exponentially away from it and do something else. So these perfectly repeating trajectories are rare and very unstable. Nevertheless, they manage to leave their mark because they concentrate quantum waves along them. That's why you see scars. Well, in the years since his discovery of scars... Heller has continued to do pioneering work in quantum chaos. Perhaps, more surprisingly, he's taken up a kind of second career. Maybe it's more like a hobby, but he's quite serious about it. He's a quantum artist. He's made images of these quantum waves and also classical chaos, and they're as beautiful as they are scientifically revealing. In a minute, I'll show you two images of classical chaos that depict the paths of hundreds of thousands of electrons treated as classical particles, sort of think of them as skiing over a bumpy landscape with moguls on it, randomly placed. These, these moguls, the random moguls, that's a natural thing to think about in connection with a problem in nanoelectronics, the electronics of the future. Heller and his colleagues were trying to understand what a two-dimensional gas of electrons would do as it moves through a tiny semiconductor device called a quantum dot. The random moguls are produced by interactions between these electrons and the donor atoms that have contributed the electrons. They're now positively charged ions sitting in two layers that are confining the electrons to this two-dimensional sheet, the gas. Now, given the randomness of these moguls, you know, as you're sort of skiing your way over this bumpy landscape, you, the electron, 
Heller and his colleagues expected to find a mess of crisscrossing paths as all these electrons, the 100,000 of them launched in, would be veering past each other. But their simulations showed something surprising and important for understanding these future electronic devices. Here's what he found you would get if you launch the electrons in from the side as a thin tube of 100,000 trajectories all close together. He calls this picture exponential, and it's magnificent. Here's the thin tube of trajectories, 100,000 of them, but they all start separating, diverging because of chaos. Not so surprising. But what is surprising is that then they later get concentrated again along these wispy structures. That was not expected. The concentration on certain pathways was unexpected and beautiful. Similarly, here's what would happen if you launch the electrons from the center. The same wispy structures, not expected. So you can see why people like these as art, and you can actually buy them from, by the way, he goes by Rick Heller. You could buy them from Eric Heller's gallery. Uh, it's called Resonance Art. Buy a poster if you like. Anyway, so gorgeous images. Now, one image that I don't think is his most gorgeous, but that I like very much, is this next one, because it shows something very deep and satisfying, how to reconcile the classical and quantum views of reality. That is, if you think about traditional classical trajectory, there is a way to give it a kind of quantum flavor. And what you need to do is imbue that trajectory with a color. The color, think of a color like a color wheel. You know, red is close to orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, which is close to red again. So there's a sort of circle of phases of different colors. And if you attach a changing phase to the trajectory as it moves, that is a changing color, that's sort of the right recipe for going between the classical particle description and the quantum wave description. And that's what this next picture shows. Here you see a trajectory with the changing colors along it. At this point, we're still thinking classically. But Heller wonders, how do we go over into the quantum version of this? As this trajectory continues to move, threading its way, kind of almost like crochet here, it makes a structure which, by the end, looks exactly like wave patterns interfering. That is, this is the quantum version of the same phenomenon that's being shown up here classically with these changing phases, the changing color. So this is a way of visualizing how quantum mechanics and classical mechanics can blend seamlessly into each other. That's why he calls it Rosetta Stone. It's the key to decoding the, the correspondence between the classical and quantum worlds. Now, quantum chaos may also have practical applications. I've already hinted that they may be important. Quantum chaos may play a role in the design of these nanoscale devices of the future that will revolutionize electronics in the years ahead. At this scale of just bigger than, you know, tens of atoms or hundreds of atoms, and at sufficiently low temperatures, electrons have to be treated as waves. You can't really think of them as particles anymore. And the principles of traditional electronics go out the window. Researchers have begun exploring this new realm by building miniature quantum dots in the shapes of stadiums and circles, except now the billiard balls are electrons. At temperatures close to absolute zero, they find that the electrons travel freely, and they only suffer electrical resistance when they bang off the walls. Well, these experiments show the telltale predicted signs of quantum chaos. The electrical resistance of the device changes dramatically, depending on whether you used a stadium, where the classical motion would be chaotic, or regular, like in a circle. So quantum chaos leaves its mark on electrical conduction 
And it's going to be important in understanding these future electronic devices. I want to conclude, though, with what I take to be the greatest shocker of all about quantum chaos. It uncovers a mysterious pattern linking two realms that you might think have nothing to do with each other. One is the realm of reality, the realm of reality, where atoms, we're going to be talking about atoms, the bedrock of reality. The other is the realm of the imagination, the most ethereal realm of human thought, pure number theory. Here's the question. Let's speak in language of number theory for a few minutes and then come back to quantum mechanics for the astonishing connection. So in the world of number theory, an ancient question is, can we find a formula for prime numbers? Remember prime numbers? Whole numbers, you know, are divisible. Six is divisible by two and by three. That's not a prime. Seven is not divisible by anything, just one in itself and seven. So we are interested now in the prime numbers And the question is, can we find a formula for the next prime number or for any given prime number? No one has ever been able to find a formula that produces just prime numbers. So short of that, mathematicians have wondered, can we at least understand the statistics of prime numbers? That is, they sort of have random-like qualities. They don't come at a regular clip. Sometimes there's a big space between two prime numbers. Sometimes they're just next to each other, separated by two like 17 and 19. What are the rules governing the spacing of the prime numbers? That's one question, but what are their statistical properties viewed in aggregate? For example, suppose I ask you this. Look at all the numbers between 1 and, say, 100. How many prime numbers are there in that that region between 1 and 100? If you count, just looking for prime numbers, like little jewels, like little beautiful shells on the beach, you would find that there are 25 numbers between 1 and 100 that are prime. Suppose I ask how many between 1 and 1,000 to try to get better statistics. Well, it turns out the percentage thins out. It's not 25% anymore. It thins out as we go to higher n than 100. The primes become rarer. Here's what the pattern looks like showing the distribution of prime numbers. How many prime numbers are there less than a given number? There's a graph. Now, on the vertical axis, I'm showing the number of primes less than a specified number n. And then here's n going from 0 to 100. So I already mentioned that if I look for how many prime numbers are less than 100, it should be 25. And you see that this graph goes up to a point at a height of 25. What's interesting, though, is the staircase structure to it. Of course, there has to be a staircase because every time n crosses a new prime number, the count goes up by 1. So that's why we have these steps of height 1. But what I want you to notice is the trend. There's a staircase structure, but there's a very clear trend. You could draw a smooth line through here. That's the first thing that that caught mathematicians' attention. What is the trend line? Well, the great mathematician Carl Friedrich Gauss figured that out. He found a formula for the trend, and it's called the prime number theorem. It says that the number of prime numbers less than n is given by this formula. It's n divided by logarithm of n. Logarithms, again, we've talked about logarithms a few times. Well, they mysteriously reappear here, but that's not what I want to focus on. The trend line is not really our story. It's interesting, but that's not the important point for right now. The question is, can we improve over the trend line? Can we capture the wiggles in the staircase? And in the mid-1800s, another great mathematician, Bernard Riemann, 
improved Gauss's formula. And here's what his trend line looks like. It has the right general shape, what you would get from eyeballing the picture. But Riemann went farther, and he found a stunning formula for the missing staircase part. What he needed to do was add certain waves to the trend to make it look more staircase-like. And he did that, and he got something that looks like this. You see the trend line, but then there are wiggles on it. These are certain magic waves which, if Riemann added enough of them, would exactly reproduce the distribution of prime numbers. Well, this is where the plot thickens because this, these magic waves were based on a guess. His improved formula, the trend line plus the waves, was based on a hypothesis that's now called the Riemann hypothesis about the specific frequencies of the waves that he needed to add. And so his guess is sometimes called the music of the primes. Why music? Of course, because music is made of waves, sound waves. And Riemann's waves are the secret to the mystery of the primes. Proving Riemann's hypothesis is regarded as the greatest unsolved problem in all of math. Now back to quantum chaos. What does this have to do with quantum chaos? Well, waves. I've been talking about waves. Quantum systems have discrete energy levels corresponding to waves vibrating at certain frequencies. Likewise, the secrets of the primes are encoded in a discrete set of wave frequencies, the magic frequencies that Riemann found, it, found that he needed, which are called by this foreboding name the zeros of the Riemann zeta function. Just think of them as the magic frequencies. Well, here's the shocker that I hinted at earlier. The frequencies of the Riemann waves look uncannily like the frequencies of a quantum chaotic system. That's the big point. In a nutshell, it seems that there is some chaotic system, no one has discovered it yet, whose quantum counterpart would hold the secret to the music of the primes. The connections here, chaos, atoms, prime numbers, are as spooky as they are far-reaching. The atoms of arithmetic, the prime numbers, are connected to the atoms of reality. And the link between them? Chaos. I get chills just telling you about this. I hope that this problem will be solved in my lifetime. It is magnificent. So I will see you next time. We will talk about nature's incredible ability to organize itself.